Well, welcome uh, back to the uh, podcast for Cultural Reformation. And this is a special edition of our uh, podcast today uh, because uh, joining me in the studio is not just uh, your usual host, Ryan Eras, but we also have Dr. Ted Fenske, who is a cardiologist in uh, Alberta and a fellow of the Ezra Institute, joining us from Alberta. Welcome, Ted. Thank you for being with us. Good morning. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, also, um, Dr. Peter Saunders, uh, who is a surgeon and he is the uh, CEO of the Christian Medical and Dental uh, Association internationally. So it's the International Christian Medical and Dental Association, and he is based in the UK, although I think he is a Kiwi. Is that correct, Peter? <laughs> So we'll, we'll forgive you. Quite correct. Forgive you for that. Yeah. <laughs> now the, um, the the it's a special privilege for me because I've actually known both Dr. Fenske and Dr. Saunders for some years now. I've had the privilege of um, working with Dr. Peter Saunders at the Wilberforce Academy in England, and uh, to benefit from his teaching and lecturing and articles over the years. Um, and also a long-standing friendship and working relationship with Dr. Fenske as well uh, in Alberta, um, who I've known now and his family for many years and benefited so much from his work and his articles and ministry also. So we're so grateful that both of you as as, uh, medical professionals in the Christian community have been uh, willing to join us today. The part of the reason that we thought we'd do this special podcast is that um, I sort of wandered in where angels fear to tread a few days ago, actually published on Friday last week. Uh, People were asking us uh, as an institute what we thought about the current crisis, and it's very difficult to just say nothing um, as a, a think tank and a worldview training organization. And uh, so some of my initial musings on the crisis were published in an article on our website called COVID-19 Calamity. Uh, And um, we experienced um, an unexpected spike that we don't usually get that. We're not first responders as an organization. We are a think tank and we tend to do long form uh, articles and our, our focus is worldview. We don't typically respond to things going on in the media in this sort of situation. So we were not expecting any more than the usual volume of traffic. Uh, But I think we've guessed that now because everybody appears to be stuck inside with little more to do than forward articles to one another. And there's only (laughs) sort of one variation of this same headline. Everyone's sort of reading from the same sheets. Right. So we, we, we wandered into it, and my, the focus of my article, and I know both of you, Peter and Ted, have read it, uh, was to talk about how God might be speaking through and in this whole situation, uh, the elements of God's judgment in this situation, both in terms of epidemics in Scripture and the response to them. And then I raised some questions uh, about... Um, how we are responding as nations and what might also be the fallout of that response. Probably the most controversial element in my article was I cited a few statistics from Europe. I I also cited a few outliers um, from one from uh, Stanford University here in America and uh, 
a German professor as well. And based on some very uh, faithful counsel that I've received from medical professionals, um, both of whom are on the line here, but also others, I've moderated some of that material in there, um, taken some of it out uh, in the first article, just because I don't want to mislead anybody, or and I'm no infectious disease specialist. So uh, there's differing opinions. Lots of articles are flying around everywhere. So we thought, well, in terms of the, the most controversial aspects uh, of the article, it'd be better to talk to um, faithful Christian professionals looking at all of this. So let's get, let's get into it the, in, in general, um, but uh, we wanted to focus a little bit more on the kinds of questions that Christians are now asking about the response in light of the crisis. Um, and maybe we could start um, here with you, Peter, uh, with our with our first question, um, in terms of just uh, helping us understand, helping our listeners understand uh, the health implications uh, of COVID nineteen, maybe just giving us a, a brief um, description of it, what people are actually dealing with. I've read recently that there may be two strains of it out there, S and L, I think. Although I could be wrong, I'm going from memory there. Um, and help us just understand right now what are the implications for uh, people who are suffering with it and, and who, are, who, are, who are the people who are most vulnerable to this virus? Okay, well, as we know, the, the virus began in Wuhan in China uh, back in December last year, and it's gradually spread all over the world so that now over 200 countries uh, and territories are involved. and the focus of the, the the worst activity now is Western Europe and the US, but the numbers are increasing everywhere. What makes this virus particularly dangerous is that there is no treatment, there's no vaccine, and it is reasonably infectious, not as much as measles or chickenpox, but uh, as much as the flu. And it... Um, it has a relatively high mortality. We're not sure exactly how high, but we think it's at least 10 times more dangerous than the flu in terms of ending people's lives. It may be up to 30 times. The, the World Health Association is saying that about 3% of people will die. That Those figures are probably higher than the actual figure. It's probably closer to about 1%. In terms of susceptibility, the, the people who are elderly greater than, than 60 years of age, but particularly 70 years of age, so the figures that came out of uh, China initially showed that six people in their 60s, 3% of them would die, 8% of those in their 70s, and 15% of those in their 80s, based on the Chinese figures. And from China also, they said that four out of five uh, would have relatively minor uh, illnesses and escaped hospital, but one in five would need hospitalization. And of those, one in four would need not just oxygen, but intensive care. So it's, it's a serious illness. We don't quite know how bad yet, but uh, the figures now, we're, we're probably going to cross a million cases today, although we think worldwide, but that is a huge underestimate, we think, because many countries are not testing for the virus, and so the numbers are underrepresented. But what is 
significant is the number of deaths will probably pass 50,000 worldwide today. Uh, but the rate of increase is what is startling. So it's about running on about 10% increase of deaths per day at present. So 50,000 today, uh, if it carried on at this rate unabated, would mean 100,000 by the 9th of April, a million by the 3rd of May, 2 million by the 10th of May, 5 million by the 20th of May, 10 million by the 27th of May, and so on. Now, a lot of countries around the world have implemented uh, lockdown or social distancing, and we think this is going to have uh, a huge effect in, in ameliorating that rise. But at the moment, it's early days, and we, we simply don't know. But to give you a, an idea of the rise, in Britain, we had our first death on the 5th of May. It was one or two deaths a day for about a week. But there's been a steady increase since then. And on the last two days, we've had 500 deaths each day and a total of uh, over or, or almost 3,000 deaths uh, so far. So Britain is one of the worst countries now in, in Western Europe. Uh, mm. I think the other thing that makes this difficult to deal with is that it is relatively easily spread either through physical contact uh, or through uh, coughing, droplets, aerosol, that kind of thing. Yes. So um, just uh, drilling down a tiny bit more into into that, Peter, maybe uh, you could help our audience just understand uh, the difference between the denominator and the numerator, which is part of the challenge in assessing the risk. So the denominator being the number of deaths being recorded, a lot of um, uh, uh, material is coming out now from professionals talking about the problem of the numerator, which is we just don't know at this point how many people are infected. In fact, a, a new study just came out of the University of Oxford, which suggested that maybe half of the UK population has been infected already. Um, and uh, the, the sort of difficulty of knowing the numerator. Can you help us understand just a little bit more about the relationship between denominator and numerator and how that might affect uh, predictions and, and also the kind of models that we're seeing coming out from politicians? So people might here in Canada might be watching CTV one evening or uh, they'll be watching CNN another evening and um, President uh, uh, Trump's team offering a model. And then they're going to hear an expert 10 minutes later um, coming back saying, well, none of these models are uh, usually all models are wrong. And there are so many uncertainties. Uh, we can't be sure about how these models uh, will play themselves out. Maybe you could just speak, just drill down a little bit more into the, the, that, the relationship there between denominators, the numerator, and uh, these various models that, that people are hearing every day. Yeah. So the one thing we do know more or less for certain is the number of people who've died in Western countries who have been positive for the virus. So that's what, what we're calling uh, the numerator. And then uh, what we don't know is the number of people who've been infected by the virus. And the difficulty with that is, first of all, that uh, some countries aren't testing 
many. So in Britain, we're only testing those in hospitals, not even frontline healthcare workers are being tested. But in other countries, they're going after all of the of the, the contacts, and so they're getting a much better, more accurate indication of how many have been infected. The other problem is that some of the, case, the cases are what we call subclinical, which means people do have the infection, but they don't have any symptoms. And the problem for epidemiologists here is that we don't really know the mortality of a virus like this until well after the event, when we can do what are called serological studies, looking at who carries antibodies to the virus and has therefore had the infection. And they can't be done until after the whole thing settles down again. And so this is why uh, initial estimates of how lethal uh, viruses like this are always tend to be overestimates of the true number uh, because of the uncertainty, as I say, both about testing and about the number of subclinical infections that they've, they've been. I think the closest indicator we get uh, to look either at populations where they've gone after and tested everyone who's had symptoms and every contact, some of the East Asian countries have done this. Yeah. Or to look at a closed situation like, um, you know, a, a, an ocean liner on which everyone's been affected and seen how many have yeah, died. Yeah, di the Diamond Princess. Yeah, that, that's right. And and, and that that was about one percent, and it was a yes. predominantly old, elder population. So this is why some people are saying maybe it's lower than one percent. Uh, if you look at the Chinese figures, it's closer to to three percent. But I don't. The other problem is that deaths lag infection. So it, for those people who are unfortunately going to die from this, it's an average of 14 days after their first symptom that uh, people die. And so you've got a lag phase. So when the, uh, when the epidemic is running uh, fully in a country, uh, you get uh, an overestimate uh, the other way, if you like. So you, you can be lulled into a sense of security, of security, thinking it's not that serious, but actually many of those infected are eventually going to die in the next two weeks. So that's what makes yeah. it so difficult. But what we right. do know is that it, this is a serious, this is a serious virus. Yeah. So um, before we come to t uh, Ted, with uh, um, thanks for your patience, Ted. Just one. one one uh, uh, further drill down question on, to, on uh, in, in this, Peter. Um, the um, w one of the things that uh, you find um, some of the uh, researchers, some of the articles talking about, is the issue of excess mortality. So you're you're in the UK, um, and um, on average in the UK, apparently about 150,000 people die uh, between January and March. Um, and uh, the, the, the Imperial College um, uh, researcher, uh, is it Neil or Niall Ferguson, who's been uh, the, the one um, speaking uh, uh, dominantly in the media there and gave us the initial estimates of 500,000 that have, uh, possibly that have been revised down if certain measures were taken. Um, he said that it's possible that a half to a third of the people who um, have been dying uh, would have died anyway. So the, the question of excess mortality, uh, if you've got, uh, for example, um, 
153,000 people dying every day in the world anyway. How do, how do researchers and the, the epidemiologists and the virologists sort of work through the fog of um, how many of the people that are dying uh, would perhaps have died of a bad cold or of influenza or, or of something else anyway? Um, when do you think we'll know uh, sort of reasonably accurately what the excess mortality is? Well, it, it's important to understand the difference between dying with something and dying of something. Now, for right. example, if you, if you have cancer, but then you get pneumonia and you die a lot quicker from that than the cancer would have killed you, then you're dying with cancer, but of pneumonia. Now, people who are dying from coronavirus are almost entirely dying of or from coronavirus rather than with it. And the reason for that is because the time scale from first symptom to death is only 14 days. Uh, but the question you're asking, I think, is uh, given that a lot of these people are elderly or vulnerable, uh, would they have died anyway in the near future? And it's about time scales, really. The data yeah. that's coming out of the UK now suggests that uh, of those who are dying, about 10% uh, would, the figure I've seen, would have died in the next year after it. So the question right. is that that, of course, means that 90% wouldn't have. So people even in their uh, 70s or 80s, or for me, in, in my 60s, um, you know, still have a reasonable life expectancy on average of several years. So it's, a, it's, a it's definitely a life-shortening illness but because yeah. it affects those who are most vulnerable in terms of age or associated uh, diseases. Um, the, the, often it, it, it won't shorten life obviously nearly as much as it would for a teenager or someone who was middle-aged or a child. Yes, I'm but, looking but at an article. To be very clear, it is the coronavirus is the cause of death for, you know, almost all people who are dying of it. It is the immediate cause of death. Yes, so um, I'm looking at an article here uh, from The Critic in the UK. It was published uh, just a day or so ago, um, and I don't know how accurate these figures are, but the average age of those who have died from the virus in the UK, this article is claiming to date, um, is 79.5 years. And the average life expectancy in the United Kingdom currently is just short of 81 years. So you're saying that it does appear to be a, a disease that is primarily impacting the elderly and those people who are getting it do appear to be dying um, from the virus, not just with the virus. Yes. Uh, if, you, if you take the figures you've just given me, uh, if the average life expectancy is 81 years and the average, person, the average age of people dying is 79, and I'd say those would certainly resonate with what I would say would be true. The point is that if you take 79-year-olds, their average life expectancy is not 81. It's substantially higher than that. And that's because people who've got to 79 are a, a subset of the population who will uh, then generally live longer. No longer. So, yeah. Yeah. So the point is, if, if you're if you're talking about, um, you know, our parents or grandparents or great grandparents, however old we are, 
we're talking about something that is going to shorten their lives. It might just be by months if they're already dying from cancer or serious heart disease, but uh, more likely it's, it's going to be years, but less likely decades. So we're looking at, at, at something that, that they will die from much earlier than they would have otherwise, but they are a, a subset of the population who are more vulnerable to this kind of disease. And this is what makes coronavirus different, say, from from uh, SARS, which was no respecter of age, but makes it more like flu uh, for yes. w- which uh, elderly people are more vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. So coming to um, uh, how healthcare pr- providers and, and Ted, you can feel free to comment on anything that you've uh, heard so far, because I'm coming to you now. Um, so one of the things that I think Canadians especially are asking themselves is how are the um, how is the health service um, how are our hospitals coping um, you know what's happening on the ground in the hospitals right now um, we don't have all that many uh, recorded cases there's very little testing as far as we know going on in Canada um, and I don't know Ryan if you can pull up the latest figures on the on 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 death in Canada uh, but um, one of the things that um, the, that you know has been stressed is that uh, we don't want that that, that uh, Canada's health services provincially are you know stretched anyway, and um, you know the concern is a big rush on beds and so forth. In in view of this virus, could be um, catastrophic. I'm looking at the figures now. Um, coronavirus cases just under ten thousand at nine thousand seven hundred thirty-one known and um, 129 deaths in, uh, in Canada with about 1,700 plus um, already recovered. Uh, Ted, just give us your thoughts so far on, on, on the discussion and then tell us a little bit about um, the, the, your experience in Alberta. I mean, and, and what you know about uh, across the country, I'm sure medical professionals are talking to one another. Uh, w- what's happening? Are you seeing are you seeing beds flooded in Alberta? Uh, are hospitals overflowing with COVID patients? What's what's actually happening? Well, thank you, Joe. Uh, well, certainly the the landscape of the hospital is uh, night and day different than it was before this uh, pandemic. The uh, our hospitals not overrun currently uh, at all. We have capacity presently. Uh, we have some cases in our ICU in the hospital I'm, that I'm uh, working at, uh, but uh, our concern, of course, is, is as Peter was talking about, you know, where we are on this curve and, and what's coming. And, and the concern is that in the next two to three weeks or, or so, uh, numbers may be increasing. And, and as you mentioned, um, you know, the system's already uh, stretched uh, to begin with, and this has really affected, you know, every every part of the healthcare system from our surgeries and, and, and the admissions to, you know, cleaning and food services and uh, uh, every, every element. So there's no real, um, you know, thought or consideration happening administratively. It doesn't take into some kind of accommodation of, of how the virus is, is, is uh, potentially going to play itself out here. So as a result, um, in, the, in the healthcare uh, professional realm, there's general uh, fear and angst uh, about, you know, their per- people's personal Safety and and people, workers are frontline workers are concerned about you know their own protection and uh, going forward and and also the possibility of taking home virus you know to the family members who may be following quite 
stringently the uh, you know recommended social distancing and washing, et cetera, but still you know taking this home because really the healthcare worker is a is a is a risk factor. You know, I'm a risk factor when I come home to my kids, and so I I uh, you know this is a it plays on your mind. Uh, one one thing that we accept is certain risk. We go into medicine, and I've had some opportunities to be uh, working abroad, and and the risk that one takes on. Uh, but you don't yeah. really want to expose your your family to that that risk either. So these are what's playing in people's minds, I think, and uh, the the concerns I think are um, we won't know uh, until this whole thing settles just how how um, you know if this is appropriate or not. But certainly, this is how people are feeling. Right. Um, just uh, on the on risk to healthcare workers and uh, doctors and so forth, I've. I've not yet. I'm not yet aware. I may have missed something. I'm not yet aware of a frontline medical worker dying in Canada as yet um, from the virus. Is there um, a if 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 a if a medical professional is treating somebody with the virus, is there in your hospital, for example, is there a um, an increased risk of of negative health outcomes from repeated exposure to it or uh is it uh is it the case that if you've been exposed to it once and you've you're either asymptomatic or only mild symptoms at that point uh are you uh, resistant to it uh is, is your body then built up antibodies what what's the what what do we know so far about that and and, and the degree of risk to health workers yeah, as, as Peter is mentioning, that information will come. You know, as as we look back on this, uh, when you're in the in the fray of it all, uh, th- those are all question marks still for us as well. And uh, the, the the you know, since the uh, in my my own experience, since the AIDS epidemic of the 80s, when I trained, uh, and the development of the universal precautions, um, you know, that that has brought a certain protection for all healthcare professionals than in the medical field in terms of reducing risk. So we have fairly stringent infectious control measures uh, that have become heightened now uh, in this in this time just because of the the uh, how how more easily spread perhaps this uh, virus is than, than other uh, issues for example the AIDS virus uh, bloodborne and uh, and so th- there is this uh, concern and, and why, one it would it would stand to reason that the more exposures one has the, the higher the potential for for infection and you know this was seen for example in in other you know the the Ebola crisis uh, uh, in, in 2014. You know the the, the physicians and the, the healthcare workers that had repeated exposures, their their risk went up. We we've had no deaths, of course, but uh, we have had um, some of our our staff at our own hospital who have uh, are positive. And the the problem here is that uh, because they're positive, they had this uh, wide web, if you like, of interaction with other staff members. It's really yeah. allowed, it's forced all these people then to go on on a, on a uh, quarantine, and so it really affects on the workload for us because now right. we have reduced numbers, you know, and so whole whole areas of the hospital now are, are shut down if you like because of one person being positive, and then because of their shift work and contacts, now all those people have to self isolate, and so that that's that also a, a and is that for a 14-day period that they have to, is yeah. it sort of 14 days? Yes. Well, we have, we, we, we can test people sooner than that. Uh, and so we, but it still takes about 72 hours or so to get a, tur- a turnaround, even on a, on a healthcare professional uh, of a result. So one of my colleagues was concerned 
uh, with symptoms and, and had had to go through a two week uh, isolation. Um, on the Canadian landscape, then Ted specifically, um, one of the questions people have is 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 why why is there not um, uh, uh, maybe you can help us understand what the medical profession is saying about this. Why is there not widespread testing in Canada? We're a relatively small country in terms of population, just over 30 million. Um, uh, we're much more like one of the smaller European nations, not like you know our massive neighbor, the US. Um, and you know we've got uh, the, this at the moment relatively limited number of cases, um, and so that that our our understanding in Canada of the the denominator numerator relationship is very poor, um, and we've got these you know national lockdown quarantine um, measures. Is there is there is there a particular reason that you're aware of uh, that um, has uh, that that the, it means that we're not uh, testing and and isolating the vulnerable. Is there is there a particular reason why in our health services across the country um, the, the testing doesn't appear to be being emphasised? Well, I, I'm sure this would be the ideal. And if we had had kind of a head start uh, warning on this, uh, perhaps things could have been ramped up to the point where this could have actually been in place. But the reality is, it 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 it, uh, it comes into an already busy uh, stress system, and uh, it's just a matter of numbers. So presently, even though we're not testing everybody, uh, we're testing a lot of people, and our blood collection services uh, is presently overwhelmed. Uh, we're having to not do other blood work on, on patients just so that we can free up uh, space for the COVID-19 testing. Right, so that, that uh, that's really helpful. So um, that brings us to, a, to, to another question, I, I think, uh, gentlemen, which um, we'd like to sort of pivot to now, having sort of got a good sense of the the the, the situation on the ground as you see it, and the uh, the risks associated with the virus. Uh, one of the concerns that I raised in my article, and I'm seeing more and more articles in the last week uh, coming out and raising the same concerns. For example, that the National Post here uh, in um, Canada has just raised a whole series of questions. Um, not just about the rates of infection and the um, the death rates and the unknowns about the the risk factors that you, you've been talking about and and the, the challenges in ascertaining that, but the the actual the uh, fallout from the measures that are being taken and one of the questions that I, I did raise as a total layman um, and. Uh, you know, I recognize that as soon as you stick your head over the uh, over the trench on on anything like this, you're risking getting it shot off. Um, but <laughs> but I did I did raise one or two questions and and I'd like to think slightly earlier, actually, than some of these um, critics that are writing now in the National Post and in the British journal, The Critic, uh, that the um, there are actually health outcomes uh, potential health outcomes uh, that result from the current measures um, that are being uh, taken. And uh, that's one of the questions that we wanted to raise with you both. And perhaps we could start with with Peter. Um, I, I raised the issue of the, the, the implications of a very sharp economic contraction that could be more severe than the 2008 uh, crisis. Uh, for example, um, we know from uh, studies, one that was done by the University of Oxford, published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, 
uh, of a massive spike in suicides um, in North America and in Europe after the, that particular crisis because of job loss, home foreclosures, uh, the, the debt, anxiety, um, that a huge uh, spike, um, over 10,000 additional excess economic suicides, they were saying, um, and um, some of these articles are talking about four or five percent higher rates of suicide. Just one, one issue: uh, poverty. Um, the you, you, we're all aware because of our global economy, the interconnectedness of the global economy now, that when the West decides to do something. And we offer our very big bailouts and stimulus packages to our to our relatively wealthy uh, societies to help ameliorate the impact. Um, countries in Africa and and Asia that are deeply impacted by this, and then try and copy Western measures. Um, we're already seeing in India and parts of Asia tremendous suffering ensuing um, from all of this. So there's the the economic collapse, the, 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 the job loss, the health implications um, for people who are unemployed, the elderly who are isolated. Uh, you know, the, I talked about the fact that uh, um, it, it's, I think, pretty well understood in, in um, medicine that even if you can articulate your purpose in life, you've got a, uh, an increased life expectancy. And if you are socially interacting with people and so forth, you increase your, your life expectancy. Not being in poverty increases life expectancy. So one of the concerns that I think it's important for us to understand in terms of health as we look at a health disaster with the virus is what might be the ensuing health and well-being disaster that follows on the heels of, of this. And so countries like Sweden have been discussing that and talking about that and are taking different measures. I'm sure there are different issues for them and Germany and other European nations who've gone a slightly different uh, route with testing and so on. But talk to us, Peter, maybe you first, a little bit about what might be some of the health outcomes, both in the West and then in other parts of the world from the measures that are being taken. Is, is, it, is it possible, is it conceivable that the fallout could be as bad as the virus itself? I think what we need to understand before we ask this question is is the the background to what's happened in other parts of the world because the trajectory of this virus is very very different in the US and western Europe than it has been in eastern east asian countries and what happened in east asian countries like uh, singapore hong kong uh, japan taiwan south korea and indeed china itself is that because of their past experience with dealing with SARS, they got onto this very, very quickly, and they instituted a very rigorous program of testing for the virus, tracing all close contacts, and then quarantining. And this was achieved uh, in, in the communist country of China, but also in, in the East Asian democracies. And the result of that was that they they had very, very few cases and very few deaths in comparison. Now, if you're going to compare countries, the best way of doing it is by talking not about deaths, but about deaths per million population. And the number of deaths per million population in China from coronavirus 
was two, two deaths per million population. But in Italy and Spain, there have been already over 200 deaths per million population. And so the problem we have in, in, uh, in Western Europe and the US is because we didn't institute an early rigorous test, trace and quarantine procedure because we just weren't ready for it, the virus stole a march on us and got away on us. And that's why we've had these radical uh, lockdown uh, policies enforced in Western Europe. Now, uh, the, and, and the thinking behind that is that now that it's out of control, what we have to do is just flatten the curve so that we can deal with uh, the, the cases that we're going to get and hope that we'll be on top of it in a couple of weeks or so because of social distancing and, and quarantining, and then we can change our approach. So, so in the UK, for example, the, the focus was all on building capacity in the health service. So finally, year nursing and medical students were recruited uh, onto the front line. They brought back over 20,000 retired doctors and nurses. They redeployed people from other specialties and trained them. They produced another 4,000 ventilators. We put up a 4,000-bed hospital in London and, and other centres and so on. And that's all aimed at trying to deal with the problem. The problem yeah. we have in the uh, – so, of course, as uh, you're absolutely right in saying that all of these lockdown measures uh, will have a huge effect in terms of businesses going out of business and in terms of the effect on people's incomes and livelihood and uh, mental illness associated with that. But these things are largely unmeasurable at this time because we don't know how long this lockdown is going to go on. But, of mm -hmm. course – as you've alluded to already, when we look at the developing world, what we're seeing tragically is a copycat of not of the Eastern Europe, Eastern Asian model of uh, test, trace and quarantine, because it's just impossible, I think, to do that. They haven't got the testing kits and the technology and infrastructure. So we're seeing this reflex lockdown on everything, which is having absolutely devastating effects. Now, we hear tens, if not hundreds of thousands of migrant workers in India who are having to walk hundreds of kilometres home because there's no public transport. Every interstate border is is closed. We're getting re reports of the police beating up uh, patients and uh, medical staff going to hospital for breaking the curfew and people arriving with injuries as as a result, and we're seeing similar we're seeing similar reflex lockdown procedures in Nigeria, uh, is another example. So yes, there's there's no doubt that the 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 effects of the reaction are huge. I think the two questions are: in Western Europe, did they have any, have any other choice but to do that, given the fact that the virus stole a march on us, and um, and I guess the the other big question is um, how long it's all going to last. Because if if this goes on for months and months, it will completely destroy economies. You know, we can see that, and we yeah. think a far better approach in developing countries would have been what we call green zoning, which is to take all of the vulnerable people, the elderly, and those with other chronic medical conditions, which make them more susceptible and put them in houses, streets, or communities where they're protected from the rest of the population. Because 
remember, as we've been saying, the vast majority of people who catch coronavirus will have a relatively mild or moderate illness that they'll get over and will then be almost certainly immune to it after that. It's it's yeah. the, the vulnerable ones who need protection. And um, if we had uh, a policy in developing countries that involved red zoning those who are affected, so you separate them from others so they they can't pass it on, but then green zoning the vulnerable so that they're protected from the uh, virus in the general community, uh, would have been far better than this reflex massive lockdown, which is having huge effects. The treatment Ted, could be worse than the disease. Yes. That's very helpful, Peter. Thank you. And, and Ted, um, uh, this whole question of herd immunity and, uh, and, and how we might, this situation might be best handled in Canada going forward. I mean, Canada is a very, very large country. It's the second largest land mass from a, just a geographical point of view on Earth. Um, the uh, people are, compared to Europe, very spread out. Of course, we do have a few big cities, Toronto, Montreal, um, Edmonton's pretty big too, uh, but um, <laughs> not quite, not quite as big. Uh, but um, uh, you know, the situation you know is not quite the same as uh, even take a country like the UK, uh, where Peter is, um, where I'm from originally. You know, is over 60 million people, relatively small island. Um, all those millions of people in London alone. Um, just just speak to this whole question that sort of Peter's alluded to a little bit a bit, bit there about how eventually or perhaps hopefully sooner rather than later we can get to a point where we're actually just trying to protect the vulnerable uh, and the sick and just build up some herd immunity in the general population that's only going to experience a very mild or asymptomatic response to this virus. I think in that sense, uh, you know, Canada has a certain advantage because we do have a large country. Uh, of course, most of us live pretty close to the 49th parallel and there is there is uh, natural crowding that we that we have but uh but yeah. certainly less so than other parts of the world uh just to build on what, what peter was saying though in terms of the uh the the impact of, of this going forward is is uh, there is uh we know already uh before this crisis the impact of loneliness and uh and we, we know uh, already uh the concern about uh the, the elderly and how how they're uh more more prone to all, all sorts of problems from, from mental health to cardiovascular uh, compromise uh, in, in loneliness. They're already uh, tend to be on the lonelier side, uh, and this is just going to augment that, that whole problem. Uh, and so th this is a, a real concern just to add to the economic and, and other issues that you were mentioning. Uh, in terms of herd, herd immunity, you know, this again will, will be something that will develop, I, I imagine, and we'll look back on this. Uh, and it'll be just, it'll be a historical uh, moment in time. Of course, right now, you know, we're we're in we're in the fray of it, and, and it's and it's much harder to consider those things. Ted, it seems it seems also the case that the that um, and Peter may want to comment on this too. That uh, the the countries that have younger populations, um, where the average age is younger, um, you know, places like Sweden. Um, but other places in Asia too seem to be faring better. I don't know where Canada is in terms of um, our, our average age of population. And I don't want to um, draw one-to-one -one conclusions um, uh, about these things in terms of um, you know the, the, the hand and the work of God in all of this. I think it's dangerous to say this happens because of this specifically and that happens because of that specifically. 
but um, uh, is, is, is there anything here that, uh, you know, if we've been in, to, some Christians would say, uh, you know, something of a culture of death for a long time, um, we've been killing our younger population through abortion. And of course, even more recently in Canada, um, euthanasia, we haven't seemed to be that caring about the elderly uh, either. Um, but uh, we do, it does seem to be the case that, that, that this, this particular disease, unlike uh, um, uh, the Spanish flu 100 years ago, uh, is really impacting the elderly and that actually having um, a much um, older population and a lack of more of a lack of young people. I mean, it's being handled. Interestingly, primary schools have been kept open uh, in, in, in Sweden. Um, the, the, I, I'm encouraged to hear you talk about how we uh, should be thinking about and reflecting on the impact on the elderly in a country that has recently uh, opened the floodgates on euthanasia and as you know the government's even been talking about expanding it um, how, how can how can we minister to to, to the isolated and the elderly in, in this sort of circumstance i think you know here we have as, as a christian community a real opportunity and i and this, this is i think where we're called to look for the opportunities uh where we can uh be be uh the lord's hands and feet and and be spring salt and light into the uh, uh, issues at, at hand, uh, you know, going along with the, the governmental uh, concerns, of course, and, and as per Romans 13, but to say, okay, what can we do here then uh, to, to try to mitigate some of this, at least the, the, the lonely factor, if not the actual uh, viral spread. And uh, he, I think you know, there's a real opportunity here for us to uh, pick up the phone and, and make those phone calls or Skype or Face FaceTime or Zoom or what have you virtually, and, and even to, to be able to try to uh, speak into these people's lives. And, and I know in my practice, uh, we, we've really uh, curtailed uh, you know, any kind of clinic or uh, all of our testing is, is, is turned almost to zero. But uh, as a result, then I'm phoning my patients. And uh, it's quite, it's quite uh, a delight to, to one, I hear that they're home. Uh, everybody's home right now, so it's, it's quite easy to get through everybody. But uh, but secondly, you know they're quite hungry uh, uh -huh. for conversation and, and to be reassured about their particular symptoms that they may have about their heart, for example, and uh, and to to hear you know plans forward and just to have that kind of contact. And I think there's a real a real um, blessing here that one can be a certain balm, if you like, you know, over the telephone line. And uh, I, I think we should we should not neglect this as, as a Christian community. Peter, uh, thank you, Ted. Peter, um, the you may have something to to add on this because I know that you, I've heard you lecture many times on the uh, issues of abortion and euthanasia, and concern for both the unborn and the the, the sort of anti-family agenda that we've seen in the West over many years, um, and also the disregard for the elderly. I, I've been finding, and it could be just me, um, but I've been finding that some of the talk of, of, of politicians has really stuck in my craw uh, over recent days as they talk about, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Mayor Cuomo, for example, in New York about you can't put a price on life and, um, uh, and, and, and people uh, criticizing uh, anybody raising the issue of potential health fallout 
uh, for all of this because you, you can't put a, a, a price on life. There's, a, there's another um, a d discussion there anyway, of course, because actually in the decisions we make about medicine all of the time, we're, we're putting a, an implicit uh, price on life. But do you, do, are you struggling at all as a, as a, a surgeon, as a, as, a, as a medical professional, but as somebody who speaks a lot on the ethical issues, are you struggling with some of the hypocrisy um, uh, that suddenly we're talking about the value of life, but uh, in, in our attitude towards the unborn and the elderly and the, and, and the vulnerable, um, our culture, until it sort of th feels threatened itself by a virus, uh, has seemed fairly careless about some of the some of the most vulnerable sectors of our society. Yes, I, I think what's what's interesting is that, of course, we're living in the West in a post-Christian society, and we're living really, I, I would say, also in Romans one terms, we're living in a in an end-stage culture. So we know in history that civilizations rise and fall and that their rise and fall has a lot to do with their beh the behavior of the individuals. We, we understand that in biblical terms, in, in terms of God's sovereignty over the rise of fallen nations and his judgment on nations in history. And I think we see this interesting mixture because on the one hand, uh, everything that's good in the West that we treasure uh, comes out of a Christian legacy, the legacy of Christianity and its profound influence on our culture. And so much of medical culture is based on this Christian idea of respect for, for life. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes from Genesis 1.27, that we're made in the image of God and therefore incredibly precious. And it's the, the sixth commandment, you shall not kill, is directly linked to that idea of being made in the image of God in the post-flood narratives in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. So on the one hand, what we're seeing, I think, is that we're witnessing people reverting to their Christian legacy, but not knowing where it's come from. And so we have all this talk about we must protect the vulnerable. Uh, every, every person is important. We've got to do our best for everyone, even if they're elderly and sick. We're going to, it doesn't matter, even if we wreck the economy to do it, we're going to look after them. And I, and I think that comes from uh, right from the foot of the cross. It's, it's the, the Lord God who laid down his life for us on the cross, even though we were sinners. You know, the strong laying down their lives for the weak, making sacrifices for the weak that, that informs our medical and Western culture. But, um, on the other hand, of course, we're living in a post-Christian society, a secular humanist society, where human beings are valued differently and where unborn children and elderly people with dementia, for example, are regarded as less important, less worthy of respect and, to a large extent, disposable. And it, it's, been, it's been shocking to see some of the appalling human rights abuses that have already taken place under the cover of this pandemic. Now, New Zealand, where I come from, has passed the most draconian abortion yeah. law just in the last few weeks to allow abortion on demand up to 20 weeks. They've done a similar thing through regulations in Britain. We have now a domestic abuse act of all things going through Parliament where they've tacked on amendments to liberalise the abortion law in, in Britain. And so, yes, I think there is hypocrisy 
but it, there's an element of they know not what they do because they're also on the other side expressing an ethic which is profoundly Christian, but they just don't recognize where it's come from. It's quite a bizarre situation. And uh, Ted, do you? Uh, what are your thoughts? Any any comments on what Peter said there? I think that's some real insights there. There's a partial falling back on um, a Christian ethic in some of the response to this, and there's also some um, cynical moves. You're as a Canadian, you'll know that there was a rather cynical attempt on the part of the government to um, give itself almost two years of unrestricted uh, tax raising um, and spending and borrowing powers. Um, without parliamentary consent, unfortunately, there was enough in the opposition to to resist that. Um, how how are you finding the sort of listening to 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 to, to some of the rhetoric, and and how might you reflect on what P Peter has said there? Yeah, I would just agree wholeheartedly, and, and we certainly have this Marxist move in Canada here, and uh, and there are uh, you know the the, the uh, there are those in power that are trying to exploit this moment in time uh, and to their own to their own ends. Uh, and, and I would just uh, uh, also echo the, uh, the the confusion then about you know how how people prior to this were, were viewing the elderly and and the, uh, the vulnerable people and, and now how they've become the centerpiece of, of concern. And I, I, I champion that that concern. Uh, they should be the, uh, you know, a, a certain centerpiece, and we should be concerned about the elderly, as Peter was saying, from our, our true Christian legacy. And I'm hoping that uh, perhaps uh, when this settles, that will still carry through. You know, that that those um, those uh, that that Christian perspective will still carry through in these in these people's minds, having gone through this uh, so-called uh, trench warfare, so to speak. Uh, that they will have a, a different sense of value for human life this is my hope that we'll not only wash our hands better uh and and cough into our our elbows better but they will actually uh take care of of the vulnerable better yes okay so, um so guys we're, we're so thankful for the time that you've given us i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, um just come to a final question and i'm gonna ask you both for uh for uh, for a concluding comment um this has been immensely helpful and informative and i'm sure that everybody who uh, listens to this is going to be uh, really encouraged helped and blessed by it let me um as my final sort of major question let me um throw a real uh, a zinger um into <laughs> into the mix here um and uh, let's remember i'm not american i'm actually canadian and british i have both passports um, one of the one of the things we're seeing there's there's obviously political fallout uh, from all of this um, in in the Western world. Where there's there's even been talk of can the European Union survive this uh, outbreak? Can the um, can the euro survive? So there's questions in Europe. Uh, you've got um, public figures in the USA saying that um, you know life will never be the same. We're going to have to make fundamental changes. These people are often uh, politically deeply influenced by Marxism and, and uh, 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 socialistic um, ideologies. Um, so all of that kind of thing is going on. There is political fallout. But one of the things that uh, struck me as I've been listening to commentary and, and reflecting on it, and Peter, uh, you know, as a Brit uh, myself and, and, and you living in the UK, you know how um, important 
uh, almost, you know, dare I say, um, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, these are my words, how the NHS um, is, to my mind, something of an idol in Britain um, and has been for several generations. I'm not talking now about the importance of healthcare. I'm talking about now the idea of socialized medicine. Uh, without putting either of your careers at risk, um, <laughs> can, I, <laughs> can I ask uh, this, this question? As myself, as a cultural apologist, um, uh, this, one of my concerns for, for, for many years has been the, the prudential question of socialized medicine, what it's meant for the taxpayer funding abortions and euthanasia, uh, as well as all kinds of um, elective surgeries to do with gender and so forth that are incredibly controversial today. And it's interesting that in most Western countries, abortions, uh, which is surely an elective surgery, are still going on and still being funded by the taxpayer in this time of crisis. This raises to my mind certain questions about uh, the uh, extent of socialized medicine and our commitment to it in the West. In, in the wake of this situation, this crisis, I, I, in a certain sense, I'm, I'm only seeing calls for it to be increased. Um, uh, but uh, this, the, the, and the, it seems, it, listening to the British Prime Minister, especially when he first made the announcement about the, the lockdown, I watched his uh, broadcast very closely. Um, his appeal to the British people was to essentially save the NHS. And of course, um, we must uh, be mindful of our healthcare workers. We've got to uh, protect them. They're concerned with protecting us. Um, that's not the question I'm asking. Um, I'm, I'm really asking a question about, do you see any fissures opening up, any uh, problems, um, that questions that we might now ask in wake of all of this about a socialized medicine? Um, and are there um, private public uh, alternatives? Uh, is there, might there be pressure to now think th through ways in which the private sector might become more involved in healthcare? Uh, you know, you've both talked about the way in which the West was behind the eight ball uh, on this. Um, Again, without uh, wanting to um, uh, throw either of your careers into total disarray at the conclusion of this program, uh, any 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 thoughts on um, the the the? the I, mean, I wouldn't hesitate to call the NHS, frankly, a national idol, and it seems that um, you know nobody wants Dagon to fall over and his head to fall off in this whole situation. Are there ways in which we could start to rethink? Um, the very, uh, in my view, myopic way in which we were, we've been approaching in, in much of the West, not in America, of course, there's more of a mixed approach there, but this very socialized medical approach, are there weaknesses to it in the wake of when you confront a, a virus like this and its fallout? So whoever dares tread into these waters, you know, feel free to speak up first. Go ahead, Peter. <laughs> well, there are so many, there are so many questions there, and obviously the, the the huge political questions of right versus left, small state versus big state, whether things like health and education should be funded centrally or um, or individually through insurance and other means, and and I guess 
those are too complex. I, we might, to, to get into in depth here, I think my, my comment would be when it comes to the NHS, you've, you've said an, an idol, and it's often said that the NHS is the closest thing Britain has to a national religion. And I think particularly at times like that, the reason for that is that people see the NHS at this moment as their salvation. And the, the, the slogan has been, go home, protect the NHS, save lives. Because we see that the NHS is not going to be able to cope with this crisis unless we help it. And so the, the message is, you've got to help the SHS by the NHS by social distancing, going home, flattening the curve, so that the load of cases that reaches the NHS is going to be manageable. And in the meantime, we're going to use all the time we've got to increase the capacity of the NHS by increasing the staff, increasing the ventilators, increasing the number of beds, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So I think that there's one way in which I, I'd, I wouldn't rather be anywhere else in a crisis like this than with the NHS, where the government can has the freedom to make all these decisions to increase its capacity and at this desperate stage to, to help us. But it's a much bigger question as to what the, the longer term thing is once we get through this. And the major crisis facing the NHS at the moment is that there simply isn't enough uh, money available to fund it centrally. And one of the main reasons for that is because Britain, like many Western countries, is in an inordinate amount of debt. I mean, the, the whole, uh, those of us who, perhaps I shouldn't reveal my colours on this, but as a New Zealander, uh, you know, perhaps it's inevitable. But I, I voted Brexit, and part of the reason was that I... So did uh, I. Uh, Praise uh, the Lord. Uh, rather than <laughs> the loss of um, sovereignty, I didn't want my laws being made by people who uh, were not accountable at the ballot box was a big part of it. But another big part of it was not wanting to be shackled to what I really saw as an economic corpse of, of Europe, a hugely indebted continent, yeah. which is not going to be able to go on. And I think from a bigger point of view, what we're seeing here, and perhaps the coronavirus might be something that puts the accent further to this, is uh, as I said, an end-stage culture, the West yeah. is in decline. And what we're seeing now in the world is the rise of the East, uh, of mm. China, East Asia, India, uh, all these new states, you know, the, the extension of the building the new Silk Road and so on. And I think we're going to be living in a, a depending on how long this goes on and what its effects are on the economy, we live in a hugely indebted world, and this is only just going to make things worse and raise tensions more. And uh, as Christians, we, we really need to be living, as the, as the apostles and others in the first century were always living, even at that time, in the expectation of the imminent return of, of Christ and seeing all of these things happening as signs of his coming. So it's a call for the church. To, to preach the gospel, to call people to repentance, to live holy lives, to serve compassionately with the heart and hands of, of Christ, as, as Deb was saying, and to be salt and light in our society. And uh, more than anything, I think this crisis should be calling us as Christians back to a conviction in the gospel, in our certain mm -hmm. hope 
in the fact that we do not fear death, that we know that God is utterly sovereign and that he'll work all things for good, even this virus, and be praying ultimately for his glory and for his plan uh, for the world. So uh, behind, uh, they, they say that the, uh, the Chinese character for crisis is made up of the two characters of threat and or danger and opportunity. And behind every gray cloud of threat, there's a silver lining of opportunity. And I, I think that's the question that we should be grappling with as Christians, is what opportunities does this give us as Christian believers to love, to serve, to preach, and to be that city, that light on, on a hill, uh, so that people would be drawn to our creator and our savior. Yeah, that's and I would just say statement. amen to that, uh, Peter. Well, yeah, that's, that's a powerful uh, statement. That's a, that's a brilliant, a brilliant uh, note perhaps to end on. But as a, as a lovely Canadian here uh, outside of the UK, without the, without the cool accent, I would, uh, I would just say that, you know, the Canadian position, I, I'm certainly a, a fan of, of the social medicine, socialized medicine and Tommy Douglas uh, putting that forward for us. I, I think there's tremendous advantage there for, for us over other models. But uh, the problem with uh, being in Canada is that we have, we, wa- we want to be Americans in many, in many respects. We, we follow Hollywood closely and we follow what the, the Americans are doing in terms of their their medical uh, uh, pr- provision and, and all the toys they have and all the investigations and the techniques and, and the therapies and we want what they have so the the grass is very much greener on the other side we want what they've got but we want it done in a socialized medicine scenario and so we we want the government to pay for it but we want what they have and of course in in, in the states it's a very different scenario there and uh, and they're very much paying for it so it's it's a it's really unfair us to want what they have and yet uh, that this is the tension that's created now the, the private sector is already involved and many and currently now with for example our blood services because we're overwhelmed but there may be a, a role role for that involvement going forward but I, I would I would echo though that uh, uh, patients in general do idolize medicine it is it is uh, seen as the as the savior and I think this is a mistake. And I and I think some sometimes we perpetuate this as doctors. It feels good to be the the uh, with the Messiah complex. You know, to come into a scenario and 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 fix things, so to speak. But we have limitations, and I think we have to be honest with people of the limitations that medicine has. And medicine finally can't save us. And as as nor can a self help perspective, which is so popular in our in our current culture. So I think, as Peter was saying, we have to gently steer people to uh, to the one who can save. And really, this is uh, not only an opportunity for us to be salt and light, but but perhaps a, a, an opportunity for for generalized repentance and, and a call to to, uh, yeah. to to the one who saves. The um, I think that both both of you have made some really important and powerful points there. I think this whole notion that we are in a an end stage culture in the West is something that Peter, I, as you know, probably have been in arguing for some time, uh, a cultural decadence of falling off of falling away. And um, the debt levels that you mentioned, and of course, the, the amount of debt, the sort of mortgaging of the future and of our children's future that's going on, even in the midst of this crisis, uh, Canada are pumping 107 billion uh, in, in um, sort of stimulus, uh, and, and, and bailouts that we don't have piling on the national debt, the U.S. with two trillion plus 
um, and the billions in, in, in the UK. And I think that does raise important questions and I think it will raise increasingly important questions about how we manage um, medicine going forward. And the idea of medicine as a savior, again, I think the West has really, you're absolutely right, look to that, both of you. Um, pointing that, pointing out as a kind of almost a, a, a savior um, rather than looking ultimately to Christ. I'd like to see Christians in the church recover something of their uh, role in providing various forms of care. As you both know, many of the hospitals in Europe and in North America were, were established and funded by the church, not by the state. And um, I think there's also a, a, an area, I think that's a bit of a prison for us in Canada in that um, we don't have the option in Ontario. Uh, I don't know what it's like in um, Alberta, Ted, because I know the health is governed provincially, but we don't have the option of actually having, uh, even utilizing private medicine if we can afford it. And of course that puts additional pressure uh, on the, uh, the, the public sector. So those are all really big and important questions. And, and I, you've, you've spoken to all of these issues very powerfully. Let me close then with this. Uh, this this question for both of you, you know, 30 seconds each. Um, uh, what advice then would you just give to the average Christian in their home uh, today? Uh, you've talked about the importance of, of declaring the gospel. You've both talked about the importance of the call to repentance in the midst of this crisis. How, how can we um, best serve um, as Christians in this moment of of crisis as we sit here most of us in our homes most of us under some form of quarantine um how can we best serve one another peter well i think it's to realize that uh, all the great benefits of medicine as you've said that uh, they will lengthen our lives slightly and improve its quality but it is eternity that that really matters and I think the call to the church, as always, because judgment begins with the house of God, it's for us as a church to repent, to turn away from the things that we know that are wrong and to live holy lives which commend Christ and speed his coming so that we can be that light on a hill, that salt uh, in, in our society and, and uphold him in word and deed. Uh, preaching his gospel of salvation uh, and also demonstrating his love uh, and compassion to a, a desperately hurting world. The, the writer of Hebrews talks about people being held in slavery by their fear of death. And I think what this virus is showing us any more, uh, more than perhaps anything is people being held in slavery by their terrible fear of death. And uh, But there's something far more greatly to be feared than death and something far more uh, wonderful to embrace than life uh, on this earth. Yes. Ted. Well, I would just uh, say amen to that. Um, and, and then in, in my closure, just uh, read from Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God then, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. 
uh, Saunders in the UK, Dr. Peter Saunders and Dr. Ted Fenske in Edmonton. Um, we so appreciate you both, both wonderful friends of the Institute. We're, we're, we're honored that you uh, took the time today to join us in this conversation and also help the EICC present a thought through and, and balanced perspective um, on the issues for, for, for those that would be interested in, in what we as an organization have to say. And um, uh, we want you to know how much we appreciate your work and labor in the Lord in this area of medicine. And, and at a time like this, that sense of appreciation is uh, heightened. So we, we really do thank you for, for joining us and for, for helping us today. A real honor, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. If you did, it would mean a lot to us if you took a moment to subscribe, like, and share the podcast on social media and on your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.